Many of us have prayed that prayer maybe numerous times, maybe throughout uh, your lives. Some of you, that may not be a familiar prayer. Uh, I remember as a boy uh, growing up in church, it seems like we prayed that, if not every week, very, very often. And so I memorized it and, you know, it just sort of rolled off the tongue. And uh, we would just say it over and over and over again. It's a model prayer, a, a template that Jesus gave his disciples to pray. They actually asked him to, to teach them. And so he said, here, here it is for you. It isn't necessarily meant to be uh, prayed verbatim every time. It's really meant to be more of a framework that helps us know certainly how to approach prayer, but more importantly, perhaps how to approach the one to whom we are praying, to tell us what he's like so that whenever we pray, however we pray, we know who we're talking to and uh, what the context is for that conversation. Um, I did teach through the parallel passage to the one we just read. That was out of Matthew 6. In Luke 11, this same prayer is listed. It's a little bit different, but um, I, I preached through that about a year ago in Luke 11, the ABCs of prayer. So if you're interested, you can go back and catch that. The simplicity of this prayer can be deceiving. Children, obviously, can learn it and say it, and we can too, but our familiarity with it can actually make us complacent. We can just say the words and not really think about what it is we're saying. Take, for instance, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Just let that sink in for a second. That's a request that the kingdom of God, wherever it is, whatever it is, and some of us may not have any idea, but whatever that is, we're saying we want that kingdom to come here and invade our space, invade our lives. And not only that, we want the will of God, whatever it is that God wants, we want that to be done here. And here's the standard for that. We want his will to be done on earth in the very same way that it's done in heaven. Now, just think about heaven. Do you ever think there's a day when God's will, everybody's sort of like, I think I'll just flip a coin on this one. <laughs> I mean, I'm not sure if I'm really feeling it today. No, I guarantee you, God's will is done perfectly every second of every day in heaven. And everybody gladly complies. They are completely aligned with what God wants. And this prayer is asking God to exert his will here in the same way that it's done there. Now ask yourself the question, do you truly want God's kingdom to invade your space here and now? 
Do you want his will to be done every second of every day in your life? Do you want that to saturate and shape every aspect of what you do until he returns? It's a sobering question, isn't it? Be encouraged. I cannot think of another prayer that God would be more glad to answer if we were to ask him. This request um, raises an interesting dilemma. This is kind of where we're going today. Jeff mentioned we're talking about a coming kingdom. Jesus taught his disciples to pray, your kingdom come. So the dilemma is, well, if if the disciples are asking for the kingdom of come to for the kingdom to come then that must mean it hasn't quite arrived yet or at least in its fullest sense and if that was true of them 2000 years ago then it must still be true of us as well so this whole kingdom idea I, I, we may not be quite sure what to do with that advent actually prompts us to ask the question While we're waiting for the kingdom in whatever form it's going to come, while we're waiting, we're like, well, who's on the throne? Because kingdoms have kings, right? And kings sit on thrones. So who's on it? And we're not just talking about in heaven. That's a little easier for us to answer, though it is invisible. Who's on the throne here? Now here, I want to give you something to think about. Your life has a throne. Your family has a throne. Your church has a throne. Our city, our state, our nation has a throne. There is an authority there. And every nation on earth, every empire that has ever existed has always had a throne. Every person, every family, every church, every state, every nation has always had someone in the seat of authority. And biblically understood, there are two seats of authority that govern how life is to be lived. I told you two weeks ago when we were talking about light and darkness... I mentioned in uh, 1 John 5, 19, the whole earth lies in the power of the evil one. All of it. That sounds like authority. It sounds like power. Psalm 24, 1 says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. That means he possesses All of it. So it sounds to me like we have two opposing authorities, but we need to understand the relationship between those two. So the evil one has limited authority, which is permitted by God. Otherwise, he wouldn't exist. God has ultimate authority that he's chosen to exercise in a limited way because he's not exerting it fully right now in our experience, right? People do bad things. There's sin in the world. There's brokenness. We're going to talk about that on Wednesday. 
So each person, each family, each church, each state, each nation is constantly choosing which authority will have its way. And that's by God's design. I can't say that I understand it. He didn't ask my opinion. But that seems to be the way things work here. Everyone's throne is occupied by someone. Now, here's what it looks like in an individual's life. And I'm grateful to Crew, formerly known for all of you oldies as Campus Crusade for Christ. But I learned what I'm about to show you first uh, when I was in Crew. And they talked about the throne of your life and who's on it. So this first uh, picture here is of two kinds of lives, a natural person and a spiritual person. The natural person is on the throne of their life and God is nowhere in it. They are running things all by themselves, which means since the evil one is ruling over the earth, he's on the throne of their life. They ultimately answer to him. But the spiritual person, they've come to a point in their life where they said, you know what, I can't, I can't do this. I need God. I actually need him to do for me what I can't do for myself. I need to be forgiven and made new. So they invite him to be God in their life. They put him on the throne. And at that point, they enter into a relationship with him that governs their life. Now, here's what we know. Okay, so that's a clear distinction between the natural person and the spiritual person, the Christian and the non-Christian. But we all know that it's possible for someone, any of us, <laughs> to try and take back that control, right? To get back on the throne. And so this is a third thing to think about, the self-directed life. So this is where Christ is in my life, but I'm wrestling him for the throne. I'm trying to control things rather than allowing him to call the shots, to rule over me, to direct my life. That's the self-directed life. And it looks a lot like, if you look at just practically kind of front to back on a person's life, it looks a lot like the natural person because the self is in control instead of Christ, the rightful king. This flies in the face of all the places in Scripture where God the Creator calls us to live under His authority and under the other authority that He has placed in our lives by His design. We're talking about, just want to keep you connected here, we're talking about kingdoms. We live in a world that's full of them. And we're called to live in relationship to them somehow. And generally speaking, for the Christian, for the spiritual person, they're called to live under God's authority and any other authority that God's placed in their life. So I want to show you some of those relationships. And I want you to kind of see how you're doing. Because here's the thing. How you respond to the authority that God has placed in your life here 
is directly connected to how you live under his authority. Those things are directly connected to one another. So here, there's a list up on the screen. Let me read through these. Children, you're called to obey your parents. That's not a suggestion. It's a command. Servants, be subject to your masters. Think about that in the employment context. You who are younger, be subject to your elders. We're struggling with that right now as a culture. Obey your leaders and submit to them. I know that sounds self-serving for a pastor to say. I didn't make up the rules. I answer to God for that. Because if anybody follows my lead, guess what God's going to say? Where did you take them? Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Wow. Wives. Okay, here we're going to get serious. Wives, submit to your husbands. Oh. But guys, check this out. Husbands, love your wives. How? As Christ loved the church. What did he do? Laid down his life. Kimberly and I, when we meet with couples, we say, there is mutual submission in marriage. Don't don't forget it. A wife is called to place her will behind that of her husband. They're working together. They're a team, but that's the guidance here. But husbands, you're called to place your needs behind those of your wife. So you say no to yourself often in order to say yes to her, to care for her and love her well. And then lastly, Ephesians 5.21, submit to one another. I don't think we like living under authority. I I know it's hard for me. I, I don't want to live under authority unless I just have to. But it seems to me that God would prefer that I gladly place myself under his authority and any other authority that I might have in my life. To do it gladly, joyfully, thankfully. It's a struggle. It's dark. (laughs) And this is the kind of darkness that Isaiah spoke into in Isaiah 9. Listen to these words again. With this whole idea of kingdom and authority and power and submission, think about all of that as I read these words. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth. And forevermore. That's God's design. That's God's arrangement. That's the kingdom that God is putting together. 
Continuing with what Jeff shared with us last week, he talked about that first line of a child being born, a son being given. And then we're adding to it the government being upon his shoulder. It's helpful to think about that as um, the child being born. Remember, Jeff said that's a, a picture of, his, of Jesus' humanity. A son being given was pointing to his deity. And then a government on his shoulder, as we'll see today, is pointing to his sovereignty. That word government, you could translate that as rule or reign or dominion, and it's going to be interchangeable with the idea of kingdom. So a government is a kingdom. Um, Eugene Peterson translates this in the message, uh, he'll take over running the world. That's what he's going to do. A kingdom, simply put, is a community of people living under the reign of of a king. So because kingdom is kind of an unfamiliar concept to us, particularly in North America, let's answer this next question. What's it like? Because I don't just presume to know that. I, I think a lot of times Christians are sort of making their way through life and we just sort of assume we know stuff. Instead of going and saying, what does God say about that? And that actually informs what I think about it. So I'm going to pull from that Isaiah 9 passage those references that relate to this kingdom idea. It says, the government shall be upon his shoulder, referring to the child, the son that is given. Of the increase of his government, there won't be any end. It will go on forever and ever. And it will have something to do with the throne of David. It will be over his kingdom and that is to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth, 700 years before Christ arrived, from that time forth and forevermore. So what can we learn about the kingdom from Isaiah 9? There's obviously tons and tons of other information about the kingdom, but let me make some observations here. It is established by God's decree, not man's preference. This is a prophetic pronouncement. There are no votes. He's saying there's a government coming and it's going to be in charge. The government, the kingdom, needs no assistance whatsoever from humanity. That phrase, the government, shall be upon his shoulder. It's a singular Government. This isn't just one among many. This is the one supreme without rival. It's that government. And it's going to be upon his, the child's, shoulder. In other words, Jesus will shoulder the burden of rule. And not just in a moment, but forever. Uh, kings would literally wear, uh, either they would have emblazoned on their shoulder or wear a robe with an insignia saying, that's the king. And the rule of their government, of their empire, of their authority, it's on them. They carry it. So the rule of this government, the one and only supreme government, that's going to be on the shoulder of the Messiah, the coming Savior. This is associated with the earthly throne of King David, but it's not limited to that. 
that's going to become important later when we start thinking about this kingdom coming. It is the standard for justice and righteousness. Once again, this is a cultural moment. Everybody seems to know perfectly what real justice is. But there's so many different opinions about what real justice is. He knows what real justice is. And he will execute it perfectly without a flaw. All who live under its reign will prosper in every way. And this kingdom is eternal, infinitely expansive, beyond our comprehension and without rival. Every world government has an expiration date. Finally, um, I would summarize all of this the way Paul does, 1 Corinthians 4.20. He says, the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. And isn't that really the question at the end of the day? Who has ultimate power and or authority besides God? Now, Jesus and his disciples, they spoke extensively about the kingdom. When Jesus inaugurated his ministry, uh, this is in Matthew 4, 19, it says, Jesus began to preach, saying, so here's his message. Here's his opening statement for his ministry before going to the cross. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand is at hand. That phrase at hand, remember the dilemma, like what does that mean? Is it here? Is it there? Is it coming? Has it come? What's the deal there? To be at hand means kind of fast approaching. You might think imminent. It could be any time. Another picture might be of a sunrise where it's just the sliver is just coming over the horizon. Does anybody wonder when they see that sliver if the sun's going to come up? No, we just know that's what's going to happen. The sun is going to rise. But we wouldn't call that sliver full sun. It hasn't arrived fully. It's just coming. It's on the way. We see evidence of its presence. That's the idea of the kingdom being at hand. Here's some pictures of what, heaven, of what the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is like. And if you ever want to study this subject extensively, Matthew's a great gospel because it is all over the place. That is the theme of the gospel of Matthew, is kingdom. So, Matthew 13, there's a man, these are all parables, who sowed good seed and there were some weeds growing in there. And the kingdom of God is going to be about kind of sorting out those weeds from the wheat. The kingdom's going to do that. It's going to clarify the difference between those two. Matthew 18, a king settles accounts with an indebted servant. And how that servant responds demonstrates his understanding of what the king has done with him. And what did the king do for him? He extended him mercy. And it seems to be expected by the king that his servant would extend mercy as well. Matthew 20, the master is hiring day labor. 
And some of the employees, the servants that day, begrudged the generosity of the master toward other servants. They're comparing. Rather than just being thankful for what they have, they're kind of upset that he might have given more to somebody else. The master doesn't, doesn't like that much. Matthew 22, there are 10 virgins awaiting the arrival of the bridegroom who has been delayed. Five of them are called foolish and unprepared. When the bridegroom comes, they're not ready and they miss it. The parable of the talents. These servants are given talents to do something with on the master's behalf. Most of them make good use of those talents. One doesn't, and it doesn't end well for that guy. Matthew 25, a grain of mustard seed and leaven hidden in flour. Those are pictures of the kingdom, small things having great impact. That's the kingdom of God. It is light in the darkness. It is a great source of hope. Two general themes come out of these parables. One is how, kingdom, how God's kingdom people ought to conduct themselves while they're waiting. And then the other is what God's kingdom people can expect when the kingdom arrives fully and it's here. All of this is intended to give us hope. It's intended to help us wait well because anybody can look around and see that all things are not as they ought to be. But we're told they will be. How do we know? Because we see evidence of it. We see the sliver. We've been told by the king that he's coming back. That's all intended to give us hope. It's interesting in Acts 1, so this is after the resurrection, right before Jesus ascends into heaven, his disciples come to him and they said, Lord, will you tell us, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? See, they're still thinking, rightly so, based on all that we've looked at in the Old Testament, they believe that this kingdom is going to come and rule. That it is going to be the one and only authority over all things. And it is associated with Israel. And so they're saying, okay, so now that you've done this whole death, burial, and resurrection thing, okay, are you going to usher in the kingdom? And here's what he says. It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. See, this is his thing. We're just a part of it. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. See, you're going to get to tell people the kingdom of God is at hand. It's coming. We can see this liver. And it's going to be full sun. And we all need to be ready. 
Will you be ready for the king's return? It may seem like I've already answered this question, but I'm going to ask it anyway because I want to give us a little more detail around are we there yet? Because even people who, when, when you think about the kingdom coming, there are different opinions about whether it has come or to what extent it has come or what it looks like in that regard. And so I want to answer that question. Um, some say yes, that the kingdom has come. That this idea of the government and the authority and the power and all that of God, that it has come, but they qualify that to say it's only in a spiritual sense. So the kingdom is ruling absolutely in a spiritual sense. I, I get that. <laughs> I, I, I can see what, what's trying to be said there. There's just so much that doesn't really seem to be under the authority of God at this moment. So that's sort of hard for me. It, it, it seems to me like the idea is that when the kingdom comes, there won't be any question in anybody's mind. So that's a tough one. Others say that it hasn't come. And they make a very sharp distinction between the church and Israel. See, the initial promises were made to David, right? The Davidic covenant, that there would be a king and he would inhabit the throne of David. That's even in our passage today. And that that throne would be forever. And so here's how it goes. The idea is Jesus the king came and offered the kingdom to Israel. Israel rejected that offer. And so the kingdom, in that sense, was postponed. And so really, it's all about Israel. The problem is there's so much stuff again in the Old Testament that isn't only about Israel. The Abrahamic covenant was to say, you are going to be a blessing to all the families of the earth. Not just to Israel. So somehow that has to be incorporated in there. The church has to be incorporated in there. So here's a third way to think about the coming of the kingdom. Some will say they, they give a qualified yes. And here's what it means by that. The kingdom has come in a limited way, though not fully. It is expressed through the life of the church. So the kingdom and the king, Jeff said this earlier, has taken up residence in the lives of those who have placed their faith in him. In that sense, the kingdom has come and can be seen, but it's in a limited way. It's not in a full way. There will be a day when Jesus will return literally, physically, once and for all, and he will set up his kingdom. Revelation 20 says he's going to rule for a thousand years. And at the end of that, there will be a great battle. There will be a final judgment. And then we're done. It's all done. There are no more kingdoms. There is no more departure from God's will in any way. Everything is right and new. Everything is exactly how God wants it to be. All of the time, everywhere. 
I think there's a lot to be said for that perspective. As I look around at my world, my broken, dark world that I live in, that makes a lot of sense to me. Matthew 28, here's a little encouragement. Jesus said, right before he gave his disciples the Great Commission, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So obviously he is not exercising that authority to its fullest extent right now, but he will. And if he tells me he's coming back to set up his kingdom then whether that happens in my lifetime or not is really irrelevant. I can just be confident he is coming, and I will cherish that day, whether I am alive or awaiting his return. The kingdom of God is at hand. It's an invisible kingdom. It's already here in one sense and not yet here in another. Here's how it's going to look at the end. 1 Corinthians 15. This is a great encouragement. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, the first one to rise. Then at his coming, so again that seems to signal there's going to be a delay of some kind. That seems to be the period that we're in right now. So at his coming... Those who belong to Christ will join him, join the first fruits. Then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom to God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until, it, until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Just jot down Psalm 110. We talked about that. Uh, when we were going through Luke uh, 18, I think. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. So this is referring to the millennial kingdom, the thousand-year reign of Christ. This is forward-looking. The world's going to be a very different place in that period of time, but Jesus will reign physically, materially, in our experience. With all of that assurance in mind, I want to light the hope candle. Uh, we've lighted the, the love candle and the joy candle, and now we light hope. This whole season of Advent, of waiting, it's not just wishful thinking. We're not just crossing our fingers and really hoping for the best. But we're waiting confidently based on everything that Jesus has said and done. And our record of that. And the activity of his spirit. All of those things give us hope to wait well. And that's really where we're going to end this morning. Um, in the meantime... We need to wait well. And we all ought to be thinking about what that means for us. It does mean something for us generally, but it also probably means something for us specifically. I've been especially mindful this year of 
our need, and I'll say my need for immediate gratification. You know, I just hate to push things out. Waiting is hard. And so if I can find a shortcut, if I can find some other way, then isn't that better, sooner is better kind of thing? Versus just waiting, resting, being still and knowing that he is God. I'm not God. I don't need to be on the throne of my life. Good grief. We think far too much of the kingdom's present absence and far too little of its imminent arrival. It is coming and we're told it could happen at any time. And so we want to be ready. In the kingdom of God, God is king and he reigns. He is unrivaled. There is nothing that is happening in history. There is nothing happening in your life that isn't ultimately under his authority. Even when you might feel like you're kind of doing your own thing, all of that is ultimately under his authority and his good purposes for you. He is trying to take you to a place of righteousness and holiness So how do we wait well? Two, two things I want you to think about. First of all, repent. Whatever it is, and I'm assuming there's probably something in your life that has come to mind this morning. Whatever it is that you need to turn from, that's what repent means, turn from that to God. Believing that. He's coming someday. He has life for you, abundant life. And that's a life that you're not going to experience here unless you're leaning on him, following him, turning to him. And then secondly, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Look for it everywhere. Pray that childlike prayer. Lord, your kingdom come. Your will be done in my life on earth as it is in heaven and see what he does with that as we have done in uh, the last couple of weeks as as this advent experience this year we've been asking for you to text prayer requests uh, in real time and online Uh, we want to invite you guys to do this as well but we're going to give you an opportunity to do that in just a moment in fact um, if the elders can make their way up here We are going to pray. Um, But I want to ask you a question for so what today, and that is this. Um, How rule, how, I'm sorry, how real is the rule of God in your life? So if we followed you around for a week and we just tried to see, is that person really living under the authority of God or not? What would the answer be? Nobody does that perfectly. I certainly don't. But man, what a great question to ask. Am I living under the rule of God today and tomorrow and next week and on? Whatever part of your life, whatever area or aspect of your life is is out from under the rule, under his rule right now, that's what we want to ask you to text to us. This is all anonymous. We aren't, we're not going to know who you are. 
But we just want you to just send in a request. Here's an area of my life that I want to be under the rule of God. And, and that may be a hard struggle. That, you may think that that could never happen. But that's why we want to pray for it. <laughs> that's why we want to ask God to help us bring everything under his authority, under his kingdom. So for the next, we got 10 minutes. Get your phone out. We've got a phone number here, 615-205-4367. Just text that to us. We're going to pray as, as soon as we get those texts. We're going to pray and we're going to ask God to help us bring those areas, those aspects of, of, of our lives under his rule. So go for it. Let's pray, you guys. Yeah, go for it. Lord Jesus, it is, uh, it is such an honor to come before your throne. Your throne, the throne that you rule on, rule over, the throne that you sit on, the throne that uh, you are sovereign over our lives. We're grateful for that picture that scripture gives us, that you, you sit on that throne and you hear the prayers of your saints through what we spoke of this morning, your shed blood. And so Lord, we come to you this morning, I, I pray for uh, this mother who is battling battling hard with overwhelming feelings of rejection. Probably in her mind and heart, there's no way, no how, <laughs> no time, nothing that can get her out from under that. And so, Lord, I pray for her specifically that the richness and truth and power of your very words that tells her you have given her, a, she has given you a million reasons to not love her, and yet you have loved her anyways. Lord, I pray this, this time that she would embrace that. She would live out of that the great kindness and grace of the Lord Jesus toward her, that he has accepted her, he has paid for the penalty of her sin, he died for her, and he has given her new life and a new identity, and he is with her. Lord, take that, that truth, in this mother's life and give her new life here. Lord, there's someone that... Uh, has said that they're struggling with eating habits. Probably just feel like a, a slave to food. It's like that's a place to go for comfort. I pray that you would meet him or her in that place and um, you would help them shift their pursuit of life from food to you. I pray that they would find all of the satisfaction that they could ever have in you, in your kingdom, in your goodness, in your grace and mercy, in your sufficiency. I pray that they could find all of that 
in you today and every day ahead. Lord, there's a prayer for an individual who says they're battling unbelief mm. in your ability to guide, provide, and protect. And uh, I feel that. that um, that is a temptation. Lord, for this individual and for all of us, Lord, I pray that we might be mindful that you are always with us. Your word has reminded us that you have plans for us, that you are sovereign, that you are on the throne. I pray, Lord, as we submit to that in daily decision, Lord, that we might submit our will to your will. and We might um, just feel your lavish love for us, the grace that you have for us. I pray for this individual, Lord, that their, their heart and their mind, Lord, that they might be uh, submissive to you and that they might be reminded of your faithfulness to them over the years and that, uh, that you will show yourself to be continually faithful to them. And um, I pray, Lord, as they uh, take it one day at a time, that you might grant them hope and uh, peace circumstances Lord Jesus there's a marriage here uh, going through difficult times and and the hopelessness that this spouse feels in that marriage Lord we so know every person who has ever been married that marriage is difficult that two sinners coming together doesn't you don't get less sin, you get more. It's multiplied. And yet it is a refining place. I pray this couple would see these difficulties as a refining place where you are at work exposing them to themselves. And in light of that, Lord, that both spouses, that you would create circumstances so powerful in their life through this struggle that both spouses would would give up, would turn to you, and would focus on themselves and chase after you hard, and in doing so would experience the change that you can actually bring in a marriage with two equal sinners humbly pursuing you and then loving each other as you have loved them. Lord, give this couple a biblical vision for their marriage. I pray, too, that you would surround them. They would reach out for help more than even as they've reached out this morning in prayer, which is beautiful, but they would reach out to other couples uh, <coughs> that can walk with them and disciple them. Because, Lord, we know uh, the marriage relationship sets the tone for how we for how we mature and grow spiritually. And so I pray for this couple for that. Father, two requests. One, uh, one person is struggling with a, a regrettable past. And another person is struggling with a critical spirit. And for both of them, Lord, I pray that the grace of God would just be lavished upon them. Lord, for the one, I pray that they would know that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That you have given us a freedom from our past and all its consequences eternally. And Lord, for the other, I pray that they might show 
grace and mercy to the people around them that they themselves have received from you. I pray, pray that your grace would saturate both of their hearts and minds. Lord, there's um, a prayer here for submitting one's anger and emotion under the, your authority. Being able to see with love and not lash out in anger. Uh, Lord, that is... Uh, it's a real thing, and um, we all have experienced periods of time where we just, our, our flesh takes over, and we react, and we respond in ways that are not filled with grace and for us all and for this individual who has asked for this, Lord. We pray that you might demonstrate grace to them, that they might understand the grace that has been poured out upon us all, and uh, the love that you have for us. And that might change their heart and that might give them the fresh eyes to see their circumstances and others with love and empathy and um, I appreciate the honesty of this individual and I pray Lord that you might meet them this morning and they might feel your love for them afresh and um, it might give them a fresh perspective on their circumstances and on all that they come in contact with um, today they might be able to place this under your authority and uh, that you might change them from the inside out. Lord, someone has simply asked that you might help them get off the throne of their life and put you there, submit to your leadership, to your rule, to your reign. And Lord, I, I suppose all of us could pray that in some respect. Lord, would you help all of us gladly sit at your feet and follow your lead, submit to your will and your way. Lord, that's, there's so much about that that's scary. Like what, what will you do with us if we really just turn it all over? But Lord, you're good. You're a good, good father. And so would you help us? under your rule and trust you in that way. Thank you, Father, for the great assurances that we have got, gotten today from your word about a present and coming kingdom and a present and coming king. We pray that in his name. Amen.